The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. At the outset, I'm going to be honest. I don't think the Bible has much to say on the issue of ecology in the 21st century. Up and leave. (laughs) At least not directly. Uh, Our evangelical commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture sometimes turns into an over-commitment, and we can make the Bible speak directly to issues it addresses only generally, tangentially or not at all. And ecology is one area where we run the risk of uh, hearing or making the Bible speak more loudly loudly than it does. While the Old Testament does speak to environmental issues, we have to admit that it does so from the perspective of an ancient agrarian culture located in a semi-arid dry farming environment we run the risk of asking questions that the Bible cannot answer. Um, Questions that are peculiar to our moment in history, post-industrial, early 21st century Western cultures. We have our own set of questions, and we have to be careful when we ask our questions to the Bible, which is speaking in a very different cultural and uh, societal and historical moment. So I approach this topic with reticence and encourage you to visit the uh, the seminar that my colleague Mike Kelly who played the drums last night the seminar that he'll be offering I believe that he'll spend at least a few minutes discussing the problem of how or whether uh, we should or how or whether ancient agrarian texts can speak authoritatively to modern post-industrial societies now having said that let me now talk out of the other side of my mouth While the Bible does not speak directly to us about modern ecological issues, we may still eavesdrop on its conversations on related topics and ponder how this might help us in thinking about the question of how we are to relate to the environment in the early 21st century. In other words, what I'm going to try and do is enter the the Israelite worldview and make some extrapolations from there into our own situation. Now, the announced title of this message is, What is Dominion? Well, why this topic? Well, it's supposed to cast you back, of course, to Genesis 1, 26 to 28, which we looked at last night, uh, let's, where God says, Let us make humanity in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over all the earth. It's supposed to cast us back to that text and invite the question, What is the nature of the dominion given to Adam? But now... For better or for worse, and I'll leave you to judge that, I've decided to narrow the focus of our time together just a little so that our discussion will more obviously connect to the topic of this conference. So my new title is Understanding Him to Be the Gardener, an Ecological Perspective on Adamic Dominion. And hopefully in the following minutes, some of the allusions 
in that title will become less elusive as we go along, I hope. Most discussions about ecology and the Bible understandably begin with this passage from Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the, the cultural mandate, because this is the text that is understood to speak most directly and most principially to the question of humanity's relationship to the environment. Now, I will talk about that text, but I want to do so in the context of the bigger picture that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 paints about the identity of the, the first humanity. In particular, I want to take two dimensions of this broader picture. The first dimension of this broader picture is the portrayal of Adam as a king. And well, I'll try and explain how I get there. And what I want to do is I want to work out from that starting point in an ecological direction. I want to work out from the idea that in Genesis 2, the creation of Adam should also be understood as, as his elevation to kingship. That's where I'm going to work from as I move in an ecological direction. Once I've done that, I'm going to come back and reflect upon the ecological dimension of what it means for the first humanity to have been created in God's image and likeness. So first picking up the idea of Adam's kingship and then come back and look at this question of what it means for humanity to be in God's image and likeness. But first, a quick word on the relationship of Genesis 1 and 2 because I'm, I'm going to squash the two together. I understand these chapters to tell the story of creation from two different but complementary perspectives. Genesis 1 describes the creation of man. The Hebrew word is Adam. Now you, I'll tell you the Hebrew word, and the reason I tell you that is because that should sound like an English word that you know, Adam. That's where the word Adam comes from. It's simply the Hebrew word Adam. And in Genesis 1, Adam is defined not as an individual, but as a collective. It's a collective singular, better translated as humanity or mankind. In chapter 2, the creation story is retold, but this time the focus falls on an individual, not the corporate Adam, the collective Adam, but the individual Adam, the human, the man, or simply Adam. In other words, in the opening chapters of Genesis, Adam is doubly defined, both as a collective, humanity, and as its single representative, the man, the human, who is the quintessence and the individualization of the species known as humanity. Now, understanding that will explain why I slide back and forth between Genesis 1 and 2 as I do. What I am assuming is that what is true for the collective, humanity, is also true for the individual, the human, Adam, and vice versa. Now, the first image I want to draw your attention to is the way that Genesis 1 and 2 depicts Adam as a king. Firstly, in Genesis 1, God creates humanity, man defined collectively, in order that they might subdue the earth and have dominion or to rule over creation. This is the language of kingship. This is, this is royalty language. Although humans are themselves creatures, the Lord elevates these creatures above the rest of creation so that they might rule over it on his behalf. God rules over the world, but he's going to do so through one of his creatures, and that is the creature known as Adam, humanity. Humanity is the creature who is king of creation. And by the way, this is exactly how Psalm 8 interprets Genesis 1, 26 to 28. It describes the, the character, 
the king, as it were, of Psalm of Genesis 1, as a king, one crowned with glory, ruling over creation and all things being in subjection to him. So Psalm 8 understands this passage in very royal terms. Then humanity's royal status is emphasized in Genesis 2, when the focus now narrows to the, in, to the, um, the individual human, Adam, the human. And three elements in this story suggest his royal status, although I admit that for modern readers, the royal imagery may not be immediately par apparent. The first bit of information is the fact that Adam names the animals, Genesis 2, 19 and 20. And it's long been recognized that name giving in the ancient world was primarily an exercise of sovereignty, of, of command. So in Genesis 2, um, the means by which Adam demonstrates his dominion, his kingship over the rest of the created realm is through the apparently innocuous task of naming the animals. Doesn't look very impressive, but it's an indication that he's king over creation. Even more subtle is a description of Adam's creation. Now, I want to draw your attention to the fact that Genesis 2.7 does not say that God formed Adam from the ground. What it does say is that God formed Adam from the dust of the ground. The difference is small, just one word in Hebrew, but it's very significant, very significant. Unfortunately, I don't have time to prove my case, so I'm just going to have to assert that in the Old Testament, the image of being taken out of or lifted out of dust is enthronement language. You might want to look at uh, 1 Kings 16, 1 to 3. That provides the best example. But see, you might also want to look at Samuel 2, 6 to 8. The idea of being taken out of the dust is, is the idea of elevation. Uh, enthronement language. So an Israelite, excuse me, reading this text would probably understand the literal making of man also as the metaphorical raising up of a king. In other words, the creation of Adam is also his enthronement as king. Now there's a third and even more surprising indication of the royal status of Adam in Genesis 2, and this is where my analysis is going to take its ecological turn. The relevant verse here is Genesis 2.15. Then Yahweh God took the human that, and then he settled him in the garden of Eden to work over it, to, sorry, to work it and to watch over it, to care for it. In other words, Adam is identified as a gardener, one who works the soil and cares for the garden. By the way, don't think of a vegetable patch when you hear the word garden. It's more like what we would call a botanical garden or a botanical park with a rich diversity of exotic plants and trees. In fact, the Hebrew word Eden, which is normally just transliterated as Eden, should, in the light of recent discoveries in the ancient world, should better now be translated with the word abundance. That's what Eden means, abundance, um, fertility. It's the garden of abundance. It's a garden of fertility. Now, I suspect that you hear that information and think, well, isn't that a nice rustic scene? Uh, you know, Joni Mitchell, we've got to get ourselves back to the garden, that kind of stuff. But there's more, much more to it than just a rustic scene. As surprising as it is, as it is to us, to ancients reading this text, depicting Adam as a gardener, sent the additional signal that he is being identified as a king. A couple of examples. In Mesopotamia, one of the epithets of a king was the title, the gardener. Moreover, the Assyrian kings in the first half of the first millennium BC, that's from about 1000 BC to 
actually 600 or thereabouts BC, they loved to boast about the, the, the general agricultural abundance that they brought to their land. And more specifically, they loved to boast about the, the pleasure gardens. Uh, the, the, the Akkadian word there is kirimaku. This is the, the, the pleasure gardens. Their gardens really liked the Garden of Eden that they loved to plant uh, in their cities and especially alongside their palaces. The Assyrian kings demonstrated their dominion not only by subjugating the surrounding nations, not only by building sumptuous palaces, but also by the agricultural and horticultural abundance that they brought to their lands. And the pleasure garden, filled with exotic trees and flowing streams, was the parade example of the king's life-giving role as gardener. It was visible proof that his wise rule ensured the fertility and the fruitfulness of the land as a whole. Now, the, this representation of kings as gardeners is not limited to Mesopotamia. Adam is the gardener king. He is a prototype of all kings who would come after him. Now, note also that Genesis describes the conditions of the earth before the creation of Adam. And it does so in terms of a twofold problem that needs to be solved. It's expressed this way. The NIV says in verse 5 of chapter 2, no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth. No shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. Actually, there are two types of growth, two types of plants being referred to here. The shrub of the field refers to wild vegetation that grows in the wilderness. And the plant of the field, the second clause, actually refers to cultivated grains like barley and wheat and, and anything that you would grow under um, in, in cultivated situations. The reason for the first problem, the lack of growth in the wilderness, is because it had not rained. Nothing grew in the wilderness because God had not yet set, sent rain on the earth. But Genesis also tells us that there was a different reason why there was no cultivated grains growing. Simply, it says, there was no human to work the fertile land. In other words, th there's no man, no Adam, there to work the ground. In short, things are not right with the world. Creation is incomplete. Creation is defective, if you like, until the arrival of the gardener king. Only with the arrival of Adam can creation become what it was meant to be, productive, fruitful, and verdant. In the ancient world, the king is the one responsible for ensuring the agricultural productivity of his country. In Psalm 72, it's just one reflex of this tradition. When the king acts righteously, in verse 2 it says, then he will bring, the mountains will bring prosperity to all the peoples. The idea that the mountains will, will be lush and the people will benefit from this. this um, grain will abound throughout the whole land while the land's fruit will flourish like Lebanon. This is what will happen when the righteous king is ruling. The true king, who after Adam's failure, after Adam's fall, is David. David takes the place. That's a whole different story in itself. David takes the place of Adam as the true gardener king. David, and ultimately, of course, his successors. Um, it's the king is the one who, as it were, keeps the world in ecological balance, who ensures its fertility and productivity. It's his righteous rule that does it. And it's against this background that it's not at all surprising that Genesis 2 understands that creation is not completed until the gardener king is created. The motif of Adam 
as Gardner not only draws upon the ideology of ancient Near Eastern kingship, it's also closely related to the, the idea that the first humanity was created in the image and likeness of God. And here I step back into Genesis 1. Again, to be created in God's image and likeness, that's once again royal language. Kings were often, often described themselves as being the image of the deity. And that's true also in Genesis 1 and 2. But these chapters are, are also making a more basic point. As bearers of the divine image, the first humans were created to be God-like creatures. Human mirrors of the divine creator. Gods with a small g. So it should not surprise us that Genesis 1 invites us to make connections between the creative work of God with a big G and his human image bearers. It's arguable that Genesis 1 introduces Yahweh himself, the Lord, as a divine gardener. In Genesis 1-2, we're told that the earth, uh, before God begins to act, is, as every creation, every translation puts it, is something like formless and void, whatever that means. But a much better way of translating the Hebrew word tohu vabohu, Genesis 1-2, the earth was not formless and void, but better, desolate and empty. The creation story does not begin with an earth as a shapeless nothingness. That's not where the narrative begins, not in Genesis 1-2, but rather with the earth or with the land looking like a, like a wilderness, looking like a desert better. Now the earth was desolate and empty. Or better, or maybe another way of doing it, the earth was a deserted desert. But by day three, God the gardener has turned desolation into fruitfulness. Listen to verse 11. Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees that bear fruit. And it was so. In other words, God turns the desert into paradise. He is a gardener. Now, just a passing comment here. The creation stories of Genesis 1 and 2 make most sense if read in the context of a binary opposition between barrenness, desolation on one side, and fruitfulness and fertility on the other. The creation stories are less about creation out of nothing, although they include that, and more about environmental transformation from desert to garden. So if the first humanity is created in the image of God and according to his likeness, then they too should turn desolation into fruitfulness. And of course, by implication, they should not turn fruitfulness into desolation. So it's not at all surprising that Adam's role as gardener echoes or mirrors God's garden planting that see described in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as well. I wonder whether this orientation also helps us to make sense of God's command to the first humans, her first humans to subdue the earth and to rule over it. Adam's dominion over the earth, this is where I come back to the announced topic. What is dominion? Adam's dominion over the earth is not meant to be oppressive, or destructive, but it's meant to echo God's dominion seen in creation. And it's a dominion that transforms desolation into fertility. In short, Adam was meant to rule and subdue the earth as a gardener rules and subdues his garden by working over it, by working it and taking care of it. Some extrapolations. What significance does any of this have to ecology in the 21st century? Let me suggest some... Um, 
extrapolations from the texts that we have been considering. I'm actually avoiding the word application because I'm not a pretending to apply the text meaning. Rather, I'm offering some brief reflections on how we in the 21st century might live in continuity with the worldview assumed by these opening chapters of Genesis. Just a couple of points. I wonder if the model of Gardner provides a helpful way of thinking about the environment in the 21st century, of our relationship to it. It is not a rapacious model. A gardener cares for the environment. He has to. Um, nor is it a green for green's sake model. Um, it recognises, it's a model that recognises a legitimate utilitarian use of the environment, but in a way that values and even delights in the preservation of the environment. Second extrapolation. I've argued that the original humanity's role as gardener points to their royal image-bearing status. Thus, the careful protection and enhancing of the Earth's fertility, its abundance and productivity, was viewed as a royal activity. To extrapolate from this, I think that we should see in, in, in modern attempts to preserve and enhance our physical environment at least a dim reflection of our original glorious humans. And that there is something noble, something royal, something dominion-restoring in the work of environmentalists, and even more so in the case of Christian environmentalists. My third and final extrapolation invites a connection to the gospel. In John's gospel, we discover the climactic moment of the story, the resurrection of Jesus, which is the beginning of the new creation, takes place in a garden. John tells us in chapter 19, verse 41, that at the place where Jesus was crucified was a garden, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which the body of Jesus was laid. What this means is that the new creation, the resurrection of Jesus from the dust of death, like the old creation, begins in a garden. In this setting, Mary Magdalene, meets the risen Christ, but she does not recognize him because, as John tells us, she was thinking or supposing that he was the gardener. But I can't help wondering if John, ever the master of irony, smiled as he wrote this. Because Mary, in her confusion, actually got it right. In fact, the man she saw was the gardener, the second Adam the man who would one day bring all of creation into order, harmony and abundance. But a bit more on that tomorrow. Uh, in yesterday's message... I focused on the ecological dimensions of the beginning of that great meta-narrative of redemption. And we looked at the first two chapters of Genesis. In today's talk, I'm going to put the spotlight at the back end of the story, at the eschaton, or the age to come, the age to come that dawns with the return of Christ. And I'm going to consider two texts, two, in many ways, totally different texts. It's, I really probably shouldn't do that. It might give a certain degree of incoherence to what I'm trying to achieve. But there are two texts that speak about the eschaton, the climax of history, 
And the two texts speak about that topic in a way that I think we, it has ecological implications. And maybe I'll be able to draw some implications, some extrapolations back to uh, thinking about how that has an impact on, on our environmental issues and the, the task of the Christian environmentalist in uh, this present age. First text or collection of texts I want to look at comes from the, the final two chapters of the Bible. That's not surprising. Revelation 21 and 22. And I'll look especially at uh, the first couple of verses of Revelation uh, 21. I want to look at this text fairly briefly and then move uh, in a minute or two to look with a little more detail at another text in Romans 8. Um, in Revelation 21, 1, we see John's sweeping vision of the age to come. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. This, by the way, this, this is totally in passing. Um, ever wondered why there's no sea in the new creation? It's a fascinating thing. Um, the reference to the sea in Genesis 1, or actually the references to the, the deep in Genesis 1 verse 2, uh, that the darkness was over the deep and the, the waters covered the, the, the land. Uh, it's, it's the great cosmic deep, actually. It's understood as being above us. There is this great firmament. And what it's doing, it's holding back this vast cosmic ocean. It's a very different view of the world to the one that we hold as moderns. It's the one negative note sounded in Genesis 1. Anyone familiar with ancient Near Eastern uh, creation accounts is familiar with the idea that the sea, the deep, the abyss is negative, carries negative connotations. It's destructive. It's chaotic. And it's very interesting that, that the sea stays there in Genesis 1. Yes, it's held back, but it's not removed. It's the one negative note in Genesis 1. It's, it's not a negative note uh, in saying that anything's bad, but it's there as a threat to the good uh, of the first creation. In fact, it's as it were, this, the, the great cosmic sea stands there all through our history, threatening to engulf us. Uh, that's actually what happens in the flood. The great cosmic sea collapses in. And that's that great threat which is there, and God has promised, of course, for that to not happen. But the threat remains until the new creation when there is no more sea. We are, the new creation is actually the vision of an unthreatened good, and so a better good, just that in passing. Um, this text I've just read is an incredibly important text, one that corrects so many misconceptions about the nature of salvation. I suspect that if I took a poll of most evangelical Christians and said, where do you expect to spend eternity? The vast majority would say, in heaven. And they'd be wrong, or at least partially wrong. In the following verses in Revelation 21, 2 and 3, John paints this picture. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. Our destiny is not some ethereal disembodied existence in heaven, but the life of the resurrected, glorified body lived in heaven on earth. That's our destiny, heaven on earth. And so the goodness of the old creation, in this picture that means that this, the goodness of the old creation is actually reaffirmed by the betterness of this new created order. Yes, our destiny 
is earthly. Yes, it's a new earth, but it's still earthly. It's heaven on earth, but that, that actually has the effect, I think, of affirming the physical dimension, the bodily, the earthly dimension of our existence. But there's one dimension in this picture that should um, disturb the environmentalists. The grand meta-narrative of redemption, which began in a garden, now climaxes in a city. Has all the garden imagery been abandoned or rejected at the end of the story? If it has, then that might cause us to rethink what it is that Christian environmentalists are trying to achieve. But we can't stop reading there, can we? We need to keep reading to discover that things are more complex than they first seem. And what I'll go on to suggest is that the final image of redemption is neither one of a bare city, buildings and walls, nor of a bare garden, a garden by itself, but of a garden city. Embedded in this description of um, this richly ornamented city, we find Revelation 22, verses 1 to 3. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And you have in your mind here, what's being echoed here in this description? On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. This part of the description of the New Jerusalem draws from the imagery of the Garden of Eden, and in particular from the picture of the river of life, as it comes to be called, it's described in Genesis 2, verses 10 to 14, and the tree of life, Genesis 2, 9 and, and 3:20. The imagery of the city and the garden are now held together in an ideal coexistence. Neither one nor the other, but the two mingle together. But that ideal was always part of the Israelite worldview. We've got to remember that, that the, the, garden, the story of the garden or the image of the garden actually represented an incomplete picture of the ideal world. To the Eden image, the Zion image, the city image, the Jerusalem image would later be added in Israel's reflections on, um, on their understanding of redemption. And while the image of the glorious city, see for example uh, Psalm 48 for a wonderful picture of what Zion theology looks like, the glorious city, while that image would become dominant in Israel's reflections on their destiny as in salvation, the Edenic garden element was at the very least always lurking in the background. Uh, you, can see, you can see this in a whole lot of very interesting places. One fascinating dimension of it is that in, in, you can see it in the fact that in both pre, the pre-exilic and post-exilic periods in Israel's history, either somewhere inside or just outside the city of Jerusalem, there was a piece of land known as the King's Garden. 2 Kings 25.4, Jeremiah 39.4, and Nehemiah 3.15. are just places where you get this reference to the king's garden. And that, that's a hint that in this city, the temples and the build, the temple and, the, and the, the palaces and other great buildings, there was always the king's garden, that echo of the Garden of Eden. That's just part of the understanding of the way the world works. And, that, and in Zion theology as well, that in the city imagery of Zion theology, in always included Eden theology, garden image. You can see that in passages like Isaiah 51.3. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look compassion on her ruins. The idea of it's a city, God's going to rebuild the city, and he will make her deserts 
like Eden, and he will look with compassion, sorry, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Interesting, the language of rebuilding of Jerusalem is done in terms of a replanting of a garden. Just interesting intermingling of uh, images of construction and building and garden imagery, all being woven together. You can see it in, in Psalms like Psalm 46. We have the image of the river of life flowing out from the city. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. That image being combined with the imagery of Zion. In other words, Israel's vision of the ideal world is re-expressed in John's vision of the age to come. Mighty city walls as an image of security. The order of the city, the four-square city, beautiful in its order. The lavish ornamentation of the city and its buildings is testimony to humanity's capacity to make, to construct beauty. That's, that's a dimension of the Bible. It's... it's um, its vision of beauty, which includes what man can do in building. But the garden imagery, which speaks so eloquently of life and healing, is always retained. How might we extrapolate from this picture of our future back into the present? In many ways, no doubt, but at least this balance of city and garden not only affirms the calling of humanity to be both a builder and a gardener, that's just one of these undergirding images of what the king is in Israel. He's a builder and a gardener. That, of course, is deeply embedded in just the ancient Near Eastern mindset. It's, it's the human calling to garden, but also to build. But this vision of uh, the age to come also encourages, not, encourages us not to pit, pit one image over against the other or to place one over the other, but to hold both images both dimensions of human existence, the building, city building, um, constructing image and the garden image, hold them together in a balanced, in a, in a, in balanced and integrated, integrated coexistence. That might have some implications for the way we think about the environmental project, the, environmental ta the task of Christian environmentalists in the present age, this coexistence, this balance between these two images. This is one one dimension, one picture of the age to come. The one I wanted to focus on just a little bit longer is on Romans 8, 19 to 23. Let me just read it to you. <clears throat> the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration or futility, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up into the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have, been, who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Um, that I should be discussing this text, I guess, is pretty predictable because it's the passage that Paul considers, uh, that it's a passage that has the most impact on the question of the environment, the creation, when Paul talks about uh, the age to come. And at this point, he's demonstrating that the gospel is not just about the redemption of individuals, not even just about the redemption of peoples, but it's about the redemption of creation. 
Paul, however, places the redemption of creation, or as he calls it, the liberation of creation from its bondage to decay, he places that event off in the future, to the eschaton, to the long, the, the long for age to come, when that will come in all its fullness. He says that's still in the future for creation. But verse 19, which I just reread, in particular catches my attention. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, or as literally, for the revelation of the sons of God. In verses 22 and 23, this eager expectation is given a richer dimension when Paul tells us that creation is groaning like a woman in labor, along with the people of God, as we too eagerly await our adoption as sons. Now, don't you find that interesting? I would have expected Paul to say that creation waits for Christ's coming, as the NIV typically translates the Greek word parousia. That's, that's a typical way of speaking about what we call the second coming, his parousia, his coming. Or the apocalypsis, the, the revelation of Christ, or some other phrase. I would have expected him to use a more conventional phrase to describe what it is that creation is longing for, the coming of Christ. So I wonder, though, why, first, why Paul has chosen to use the phrase revelation of the sons of God to refer to what we normally call, what we've come to call, the second coming of Christ. And then secondly, it makes me wonder, why should creation's destiny be so tied to this particular dimension of Christ's coming, the revelation of the sons of God? To answer that question, I'm going to dip back once again into the Old Testament and so justify my professional existence. And I'll warn you at the outset that I'm going to have to make some shortcuts in my arguments. So you're going to have to follow this closely. And if it didn't make sense, ask me afterwards what, how I jumped from point A to point B. Before doing so, I should make a couple of quick preliminary comments on verse 19. Paul's statement that creation is eagerly waiting the revelation of the sons of God could be a little confusing, especially since he's just told the readers that they are already the sons of God. Uh, back in verse 12, those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Verse 15, you, you have received the spirit of sonship. And verse 17, we are God's children. How then can the revelation of the sons of God be off in the future? The answer seems to be that, yes, Christians are already sons and children of God. But that is, as it were, still a secret. Something that the world does not know or see yet. But at the day of Christ's appearing and his second coming, the curtain will be pulled back and we will, we will be seen for who we really are. That's, that's the kind of idea, the kind of tension that's being worked there. Paul expresses a similar thought in Colossians 3, verses 3 to 4. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. The revelation, the unveiling of Christ in all his glory at his second coming is also going to be the moment of the revelation, the unveiling of all those who are found in him. On the day when the universe sees Christ as he really is, it will also see us as we really are in him. And it's that kind of thinking that I think sits behind Paul's uh, use of this, Paul's idea that you are sons, but yet not revealed as sons. Another more general observation is that our sonship, our adoption as sons and as children, cannot be separated from Christ's sonship. 
Paul's doctrine of union with Christ must undergird our thinking here. When Paul calls Christians sons of God, that is, I believe, a shorthand way of saying that we are in union with the Son of God and that our, son, our sonship takes its definition and identity from Christ's sonship. Now, what you have to understand here is that Paul refers to Jesus Christ as, this is important, and you have to bear with me and work with me on this one. Um, when Paul refers to Jesus Christ as the Son of God, he is not referring to his divinity. Not referring to his status as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, as we've come to, to speak of it. No, for Paul, the title Son of God refers to Christ's humanity, or perhaps more accurately, to his status as exalted humanity. Uh, for Rome, from Romans, I would cite uh, chapter 1, verses 2 and 4 in support of this, this contention, that it's, it's, to be son of God is actually a human, a statement about Christ's humanity. Now, as I said, bear with me on that. That's one of the shortcuts I'm taking, and perhaps this point will become less controversial as I go along. Let's get back to our question. So why is creation eagerly awaiting and groaning as it awaits the revelation of the sons of God? Let's just work back through the Old Testament. The first thing I know that the concept son of God, uh, by which I mean the human son of God, is a thoroughly Israelite concept. In the Old Testament, Israel is, under, Israel is understood to be God's son. Two verses illustrate this point. First, Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. In its, original con in its original context, this verse had nothing to do with Jesus and everything to do with Israel. How those, that connection is made by Matthew is another story for another day. Um, this is a reference back to the story, excuse me, the story of Exodus, when God called the nation of Israel his human son out of Egypt. But Exodus itself uses this sonship language about Israel. In Exodus 4, to 23, the Lord says to Moses, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. So in the Old Testament, Yahweh has a human son, and that son has a corporate identity, the nation of Israel. By the way, Paul adopts the same interpretation of Israel's identity because in Romans 9.4, he says that to the people of Israel, or the people of Israel once had the adoption as sons, or sonship, 9.4. And in this list of blessings that Israel had, her status as the human son of God, collectively defined, took pride of place. But what we discover, and it's not surprising in the light of what we said yesterday, is that the collective son of God, Israel, has an individual counterpart, the representative of the nation, the one in whom the national identity finds individual expression. That individual is none other than Israel's king, of whom David is the great archetype. Again, two, sets to, two texts to illustrate this point. The first is 1 Samuel 7.14. Uh, the context is that the Lord is making a covenant with David in which he promises to keep David's descendants on the throne forever. Describing his relationship with these future kings, the Lord says, I will be his father and he will be my son. In other words, the king of Israel, like the nation itself, was understood to be the human son of God. Another verse. Uh, Psalm 2.7. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. 
Um, today I have become your father, or as King James says, today I have begotten you. Okay, that one's talking about Jesus, isn't it? No, it's not actually, not yet, not in its original setting. Um, actually, it it's fits wonderfully into Israelite royal theology, Israelite son of God theology. Uh, it just is a way of referring to the king, to David. The context is that the surrounding nations are rebelling against the Lord and against his anointed king, David, or one of his descendants. And then in verse 7, what the king does is recite uh, words that were spoken to him, probably words that the Lord spoke to him, probably through a prophet on the day that he was anointed as king. And probably the same words, I suspect, were repeated on the day that he was crowned, the day of his coronation. What this means is that on the day that David was anointed as king, he was adopted as the human son of God. See, that's what he's reciting here. He's reciting words spoken to him on the day of his anointing or perhaps coronation. You are my son. Today, the day of your anointing, and then later on the day of your coronation, I have become your father. What this means is that Davidic kingship and human son of God are overlapping categories. That's interesting. Um, what I'm saying there is that the idea of son of God has a collective and an individual reflex. The nation, Israel, and David, the king. It's interesting, but where does that all end up? Well, consider the next verse Psalm of Psalm 2. The psalmist continues with the words of the Lord's decree. I'm your son, I'm your father. You, you know, Today I've become your father. Now, David, ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. When God adopts you as son, the whole earth is your inheritance. Now, does that sound familiar? Remember Genesis 1, 26 to 28? There God blessed the original humanity with world dominion. Subdue, have dominion over the whole created realm. Let me signal where I'm heading here. After the fall of the first humanity and the first human, their dominion passed to Israel and the Israelite, David and his descendants. In the unfolding story of redemption, Israel and David take the place of the first humanity and the first human, Adam. And that actually is just helpful to understand how the story unfolds, that, that passing on of the, the individual and collective roles from the first humanity and Adam onto Israel and David. The original humanity and the original human were, rule, were created to rule the world on God's behalf. They were also created in the image of God. But when you look at, when you look at Genesis 5 verse 3, you discover that the language of image and likeness is also the language of sonship. Here's what that verse says. When Adam had lived for 130 years, he had a son in his own image, in his, in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. This suggests that the creation of the first humanity and the first human in the image and likeness of God means that they were also understood to be the collective and individual human son of God. You can see where I'm tracking this argument here. This is interesting. This is exactly the, po the point that Luke makes in his genealogy of Jesus. Enosh the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. In other words, at its most basic level, son of God language is Adam language or first humanity language. 
So the creation of Adam is not only, as I suggested yesterday, not only his enthronement as king, but also his adoption as the human son of God. And of course, the first humanity falls into sin, and when Adam is cast out of the garden, it is the king dethroned, but it's also the son disinherited. But in the unfolding story of redemption, the role of the collective son of God is taken up. Now I'm turning back around, going back in the opposite direction, back to Romans 8. Um, in the unfolding story of redemption, um, it's Israel picks up that role of the first humanity. Um, Israel becomes God's newly adopted firstborn, taking the place of the first firstborn. And while the role of the individual son of God is passed to David and his, his, and his successors, Israel is the second humanity and David the second Adam through whom God will rule the world. Understanding that Israel fits or stands in Adam on the first humanity's place also might explain why the nation is called to care for creation. See, if you're standing in the place of the original creation, the original, cre um, the original humanity, and you take its role of caring for creation, the gardener role, then it's not surprising that we get texts like the, um, in Israel's laws, Exodus 23, 10, uh, 10, to 11, 10 to 12 it is. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops, but during the seventh year let the land lie unploughed and unused. Then the poor of your people may you get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest. When Israel shows itself to be the true humanity, that is the obedient humanity, the true replacement of the original humanity, creation experiences sabbatical blessings. Creation is blessed as Israel is obedient. Of course, what we discover is that while Israel and the Davidic kings were meant to live out Genesis 1 and 2, Sadly, they reenacted Genesis 3 as well. Not in a moment of faithlessness like Adam and Eve, but in a long story of covenant infidelity. <clears throat> the disobedience of Israel and her kings then is a, is a story of bad news for creation. That means that creation is subject to futility and still in the bondage of, to decay. Until the day comes when a, an obedient son of God, a true image bearer, a faithful gardener king arrives on the scene. And that's the gospel. That's the good news, not just for sinful humanity, but also for creation. That Jesus of Nazareth has been declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Romans 1.4. And that at last, the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15.45, and the true image bearer, Colossians 1.15, the gardener king, ultimately, that he's here to set the world right. That's good news for creation. But that's only half the story. Recreation is not complete until the individual son of God has his collective counterpart. And this is where we, thought we close the circle of our long journey from Romans 8 to Genesis 1 and back. Why does Paul say that creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed? Once you realize that this language ultimately leads you back to Genesis 1 and 2, then you might begin to understand why Paul uses the language of sonship to speak about the day when creation's futility and groaning will come to an end. Why does creation wait expectantly? Why does creation groan? Because since the fall, Creation is looking for the true humanity, the collective son of God, the gardener people 
who will be in right relationship with it and will care for it. The good news for creation is that those sons of God, those creation lovers, those gardeners of the new heaven and the new earth are here, are here. But they're hidden. But one day, when the Son of God is revealed and the sons of God are revealed with him, then the world, then the creation will see see the good news, experience the good news that the sons of God, true humanity which will care for creation, are finally here. A new humanity who will finally work the creation but take care of it as well. Well, what what does this have to do with anything have to do with Christian environmentalism in the here and now? Try this, and I trust I'm not being a little, not being too creative. Christian environmentalists are evangelists. Now, obviously, I don't mean that care for the environment is the same as preaching the gospel to sinful humans, but the work of the Christian environmentalists, which I guess should be all of us, should be understood as the announcement of the gospel, the good news of new creation in Christ to creation. In caring for creation, <coughs> Christians give creation a foretaste, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the last remnants of my cold as I finish. So the, the, um, it, it's the work of the Christian environmentalists is, is a declaration of the good news of new creation that's coming in Jesus Christ. In caring for creation, Christians give it a foretaste of what is to come. To give it a foretaste, to give creation a foretaste of what it is eagerly waiting for. It is as if Christians, as we are environmentalists, were meant to drop hints to creation that though the sons of God, the gardeners, are still hidden, we are here. Take heart, creation. Keep waiting. Our day, the sons of God, our day of revelation is still coming, and your day of recreation will surely come. Put our work as environmentalists in that context. And then, then secondly and finally, as Christians guard creation, it is as if the age to come is breaking into this present age. If you think about what we do as Christian environmentalists, it is the inbreaking of the age to come. Yes, imperfect, effective, incomplete, but an inbreaking nonetheless. But isn't that exactly what the Christian life is all about? Living out the age to come in this present fallen age. Thank you.